Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. I hope when we're done today, you can see how to get past your past and let your view of the future define who you are. Let's get started. Beck Weathers, a pathologist from Dallas, had spent most of his adult years obsessed with climbing. He put climbing ahead of his family, time with his children, and other priorities in life. In his early 30s, as he battled his own depression, he fed his dark obsessions by losing himself in one extreme climb after another. His wife, Peach, had objected to his trip to Everest as she did to his other climbs around the world, but her wishes had gone unheeded as he was fixated on climbing the highest mountain Beck arrived on Everest, eager to scale the ultimate mountain, and everything was in place for a successful summit. He had signed up with professional guide Rob Hall. They had spent weeks acclimatizing for their final ascent to the top of the tallest mountain. And on May 10th, the plan was to leave advance camp early in the morning hours, thereby allowing for a summit attempt around noon and giving them time to safely return to their tents at high camp before nightfall. Beck was feeling strong in the early morning hours as he fell in line with his teammates, but soon he began to lose his vision. A surgery 18 months earlier caused his vision to be impacted by the 27,000-foot altitude, and after his vision faded, he told his guide, Rob Hall, that he would wait for a few hours and follow the others to the top if his vision returned. Now, Rob agreed as long as Beck promised that if anything went wrong, he would wait for Hall to return from the top so they could descend to the tents safely together. So Beck agreed, not knowing that that promise would almost seal his fate. You see, what happened is Hall's team and the other climbers ascended that day, but they were delayed by one mishap after another, and most arrived atop Everest well after the predetermined turnaround time. And further down the mountain, Beck's vision never returned. And as climber after climber returned from the top, they passed Beck and said, hey, join us. Let's get down to the tents. But Beck stayed true to his promise to Hall, and he waited there patiently. Beck waited until way late in the afternoon, at which time his energy was sinking fast. His oxygen was gone. The effects of high elevation were, were taking effect on him. He was shivering. He was weak. And he was sinking into apathy. What he didn't know was Hall was still on top of Everest with serious problems of his own, and he would never make it off the mountain. Beck finally relented and joined a group of climbers who were descending because a storm had started to set in. These climbers were led by guide Neil Beidelman in their descent. Without his sight, Beck was tied to one end of a rope, and uh, the other end of the rope was tied to the climber in front of him. Now, the treachery of a descent without sight is incredibly, incredibly large and dangerous, as Beck slipped and fell numerous times nearly dragging the other climbers with him off the mountain. And as they came within an hour's walk of the safety of the tents, a massive blizzard deteriorated around them, leaving them in complete wide-out conditions. The team was quickly disoriented. With winds of over 100 miles an hour, there was clear danger of walking off the 7,000-foot vertical mountain face to a certain death. So at this time, Beidelman knew they were lost and he couldn't afford wandering around blindly on the mountain. So he ordered the climbers to stop. Five climbers would wait while Beidelman and a few others went to the tents to send back help. 
Once they stopped climbing, Beck and the others huddled in the relentless blizzard and they were shivering and freezing to death. Now, Beidelman made it to the high camp. He collapsed in exhaustion and gave instructions to guide Anatoly Bukharev to go find the climbers. But by the time Bukharev found the climbers in the storm, one woman climber had passed into unconsciousness and Weathers was completely unresponsive. And for whatever reason, Beck had unexplicably taken off his gloves and mask and fallen face first into the snow. So thinking Beck and the other climber were too far gone, Bukharev grabbed the other three climbers and led them back to camp. Now, in the morning, Beck's teammate, Stuart Hutchinson, went out and found Beck barely breathing and unresponsive. And he was in a hypothermic coma. And every Everest climber knows that that high up the mountain, there is no way to save someone in that condition. So Beck was once again left for dead. When Hutchison returned to the camp, team members radioed down to base camp and the news was relayed to Peach back home in Dallas that Beck was dead. However, about four in the afternoon later that day, 22 hours after the storm had stranded him and others, a miracle occurred. Beck opened his eyes. He said, at first, I believed I was warm and comfortable in my bed at home. But as my head cleared, I saw my gloveless hand directly in front of my face, a gray and lifeless frozen thing. And slowly he began to comprehend where he was, that he was alone on the mountain and there was no help coming. If he was going to get off the mountain, it was entirely up to him. So he struggled to his feet, he dropped his pack, and he determined that he would simply walk, no matter what. If he took a misstep and fell, so be it. He would keep moving until he fell down, couldn't walk anymore, found camp, or fell off the mountain. So he marched directly into the wind, and miraculously, he found camp. As he walked to the camp, half dead, arms frozen stiff in front of his body, the climbers in camp couldn't believe their eyes. And they called Peach back to inform her that Beck wasn't quite as dead as they thought. And in the hours and days that would follow, one miracle after another would get Beck off the mountain and to a hospital. Now, Beck would eventually lose both hands, part of his face and his feet to frostbite. He would endure numerous operations and reconstructive surgeries. But what were his feelings about his trip to Everest? I had lunch with Beck several years after this. And he said, people ask me whether I'd do it again. The answer is yes. Even if I knew exactly everything that was going to happen to me on Mount Everest, I would do it again. That day on the mountain, I traded my hands for my family and for my future. And for the first time in my life, I have peace. As I mentioned, it was a little, maybe two years after this event that I met back in Peach Weathers. We had lunch together and they talked openly about the troubles that they had had in their life and marriage before Beck's trip to Everest. They talked about Beck's failures to give time to his marriage and family. And Beck told me that that day, God gave him a gift, an unspeakable gift to open his eyes to what was most important. Now, while very few of us will actually ever attempt climbing Everest, we, like Beck, will attempt and fail in life. We all fail. Life is made up of a series of attempts and failures. And successful people learn to fail forward. Fail forward. To learn from their failures in a healthy way like Beck who opened his eyes to a new life as the result of his failure. And the problem is, is that so many 
of us let failure define us. We get stuck in a rut, if you will, unable to shake loose the failure and returning back to that memory again and again in our thoughts, in our future choices. And we find ourselves unable to shake off a bad habit or a bad decision because we can't get over our failure of the past. So how do you let go of failure? How do you open your eyes and how do you use it to define a better life? Well, the first thing we misunderstand about failure is that it does not define us. It's easy following an attempt at a new business, if you will, in which you missed your initial goals or you set a goal for yourself to change and you didn't follow through and make the change you wanted, but to let those failures define you. It happens all the time. Our self-talk becomes one of, I can never change, that didn't work, or I can't, right? The truth is, there are some simple facts that are true. And these truths remain whether at times you believe them or not. Just as gravity keeps your feet on the ground and the sun rises each morning, these truths exist. First, you are of immense worth. Your potential is endless and God views you in this light. Second, you have the power within you to make good choices and do hard things. It's a matter of learning the skills to do so, but you can and you will. And third, you are amazing. And your potential to make a difference in this world to other people and for good is unlimited. These are not wishes. These are not hopes. These are truths. I've helped a lot of people through change, and I've interacted with thousands in the midst of change. And for every single person, these three truths have been true of them, and they are for you. To rise from failure and do so a stronger person, you must see who you are. Your identity must be in your view. And when someone walks up to you and says, tell me about yourself, what do most of us say? Well, most of us describe ourselves by our employment title or family situation. I'm a CEO or I'm a father of five. I'm a business owner. Or I'm a mother of three. Really? Is this who you are? You've just described what you do, but who are you? And why do you do what you do? How do we describe our identity? Maybe it's, I love to help others by what I say and do to see the possibilities ahead of them in life. Or I love to share faith and belief. Or I'm a man trying to be a better father and give back in ways I haven't yet discovered. Or as a father, I'm learning to give my authentic voice of confidence to my children. That's my identity, but I am not what my title is at work, and I'm not just my role as a parent. I'm more than that. And you know what? I'm still figuring out who I am. I'm still making plenty of mistakes and trying to grow beyond them. But it is certain that we all go through a bit of an identity crisis from time to time. If you're in the middle of one, don't take it personal. It happens to the best of us. We look around, hoping we can discover who we are. And we get glimpses of why we're here on this earth. And as we start to figure it out, trust me, the magic will start to come into your life. Now, some of us have great difficulty in describing who we are because what we do today is not consistent with who we believe we are. And worst of all, we believe sometimes it's not likely to change. A few years ago, I had a conversation with a friend of my age who described his negative tendencies, which were keeping him from being who he really wanted to be, and he said he inherited those characteristics from his mother. It was just his nature. 
The thing is, he hasn't lived with his mother since he was 18, and he was still letting that define who he was. Many of us make the mistake of treating our identity as fixed and immovable. And as a result, we never try to create a new one. One of the greatest obstacles to change is the paralysis we create with self-limiting definitions of who we are. It is so easy to define ourselves by what we've done in the past or what others have told us or what others think of us. But the truth is, the real identity is what we see of ourselves in the future. It's easy to let the past or others define us incorrectly. I know it. I've experienced it. But what others think of our past is of little consequence. But I know people still hanging on to what others have said about them or thought about them. One day, a pastor was preaching the truth that no one is perfect to his congregation. And to prove his point, he asked for anyone who was perfect to stand up. One man stood up in the middle of the congregation and the pastor asked, do you really think that you're perfect? And the man replied, oh no, I'm not perfect. I'm standing up on behalf of my wife's first husband. People try to define us by where we've been or what we've done. And I have people in my life who only see me as what I was. They can never let me out of the box they once saw me in. Therefore, being around them is difficult because I am not who they think I am. It's uncomfortable to be with them. It lacks congruity. And it's funny, isn't it? Every time we tell a story from our history, it gets a little bigger. And I get better every time I tell some of my stories of my past. And the problem is this is also true of our past failings or successes. We all have a tendency to magnify them. And the truth is, our remembered history is false and inaccurate. We worry way too much about what others have thought about us in the past. Eleanor Roosevelt said, you wouldn't worry so much about what others think of you if you realized how seldom they do. Your true identity is what you and your true self can be in the future. In this realm, the future realm, there's a spirit of true possibility. But note, it's firmly grounded in self, and it doesn't begin in dreamland. It begins where you are and moves to what you can become. The minute that you start to identify yourself with who you can be in the future, everything changes. In 2007, a smart, beautiful young lady named Rachel Smith from Clarksville, Tennessee, won the Miss USA pageant, and she had graduated magna cum laude from Belmont University. And she'd worked for years to earn her title as Miss Tennessee and then Miss USA. And she arrived in Mexico City on May 1st, 2007, with 77 delegates from countries around the world to compete in the Miss Universe pageant. Now, after competing in the preliminary competition, Smith made the top 15. The top 15 then compete in front of the world on television in four events. And Rachel did extremely well in the first two events. Then came the evening gown competition. Now, she had practiced her walk in that competition hundreds of times. That night, however, with the world watching as she started her walk onto stage, the worst possible thing happened. She slipped, her legs flew out from under her, and she fell flat on her backside before quickly getting up and resuming her walk and trying to maintain her best composure. But it was a disaster. Everything she had worked for was gone in a single second. However, 
despite her fall and the boos from the local crowd, she made it into the top five finalists. And it didn't help that Smith advanced to the top five, and Miss Mexico, who did stay on her feet in the evening gown competition, didn't make it into the top five. So when she came out onto the stage for the last event of the competition, the Mexican crowd was relentless. They booed so much and hollered so much that the host of the show had to ask the crowd to be polite and quiet. Now, the last event was the question and answer. One of the judges, Tony Romo, took a question random from a jar. He drew it out of the jar and read the question to Rachel. And this was the question that he drew. If you could relive any moment of your life over again and do it differently, what moment would that be? Well, of course, you'd think her mind would be preoccupied with the fact that she just fell in the evening gown competition and she wants a do-over, right? But that wasn't her answer. Without hesitation, she said, if I could relive any moment of my life again, I would relive my trip to Africa where I was able to volunteer and work with children. I want to see their smiles again. I want to dedicate my life to that kind of service. You see, she chose to focus on who she was, and she wasn't about to be defined by her failing or falling on stage. So here's a healthy way to think about failing in the game of life. In the game of life, it's only halftime. Thank heaven, games don't end at halftime. If they did, the record books would be written differently. The Indianapolis Colts years ago would have won the Super Bowl instead of the New Orleans Saints, who needed that win to help the struggling New Orleans city emerge from the hurricane devastation that they'd experienced. Halftime is perhaps the most important part of the game. And what do teams do at halftime? Well, they review what worked, And what didn't work, right? They make adjustments and new plans for doing better in the second half. They get inspired. They get refreshed and prepared because now they're more familiar with their opponent, right? They use what they've learned to go out and play better. Right now is halftime for you. And life is very much the same. Right now, you can step aside, go into the locker room, assess how you're doing in life. Now you're familiar with your opponent. You can make adjustments, get refreshed, and begin anew. And remember, at halftime, there's nothing you can do about the first half score. It's done. It's in the record books. At halftime, you can't spend any time wishing things were different. You can only take what you've learned and make urgent plans for change. Life's halftime is the same. The more time spent on the new game plan, the better we'll be. And learning from our lives is what we're meant to do. So get over your past failures. They're in the record books. You can only control what you choose to do today. And this means we need to stop focusing on what's happened and focus instead on what's going to happen. You see, oftentimes when we fail, we often react in unproductive ways. We get angry or depressed. We cover up our mistakes. We ignore our mistakes. We relive our failures over and over again, or we simply give up. Now, these are reactions rather than actions. And we need to act, not react, our way to who we really are. So think about the coach of a game. Imagine if a coach's reaction to mistakes in the first half was to be depressed. Can you see a coach reliving and reviewing the mistakes over and over again at halftime? Can you see him sitting in the locker room, head in hands, wondering why bad things always happen to him? 
If he reacted like this, he wouldn't have time to get a new plan, a game plan, or focused on what's next. A good coach knows there's a second half to be played, and it's not won or lost on a single play. So he keeps his head in the game and prepares for the next half. Now, a good coach doesn't ignore past mistakes. He uses them for instruction and learning. And if he runs a play in the first half that doesn't work, he doesn't ignore that and run it again in the second half. He faces up to the fact that his design or his plan didn't work. And he uses what he's learned, recalibrates, and calls a new play, right? His prior failures inform his decision-making next time around. Life is very much the same. There's little value in reliving mistakes over and over again. And there's little value in running from our mistakes. So how do you get good at learning from your failures without becoming paralyzed by guilt or fear? Well, holding a halftime meeting and writing down what you've learned is really valuable. Writing what we've learned does several things. First, it helps clarify our thought process. It helps us weigh the mistake in the right balance and not exaggerate it. And it helps us move on in a healthy way. Weight loss experts tell us that the difference between overcoming poor eating habits and controlling our diet comes down to one key activity, and that's keeping a journal of what we eat every day. They've learned by experience that when we write down what we eat, we pay attention and we improve. And the same goes for most changes in life. When we write it down, we pay attention. Next, remember something simple about molehills. Now, molehills are small mounds of dirt left when a mole digs a, a hole in the ground, and these are similar to our small failings in life. Perhaps we said the wrong thing once or we made a bad choice. But when we write it down, learn from it, we make it part of what we try not to do in the future. The problem with molehills is that when we, we often make mountains out of them, we do this to others and we do it to ourselves. And we can focus so long on someone's shortcomings that we can't see all the other wonderful qualities that they possess. And if we focus on what we don't like about someone, we'll soon get to the point where we can't see anything good about them at all. And the same goes for ourselves. If we don't write down, if we don't learn from it, if we don't make it a part of who we are in the future, it is easy to make a mountain of a molehill. Years ago, a famous Harvard researcher and behavioral scientist taught me that you can never change as long as you are subject to something. The minute you become object to that thing, you can begin to change. You see, when emotionally mature adults find themselves embedded in a temporary failure or setback, they have the capability to stand back and view themselves and that failing and their situation as if they're looking through a camera objectively. They can think about and describe their own behavior as if they were independent from themselves, and they can see without bias what they need to do differently. They are objective, not subjective to their situation. When we view our failings objectively like a camera, it gives us the ability to choose what to do in the future, and we're no longer subject to the paralyzing feelings or patterns of the past. And we don't make mountains out of molehills. And that way, our failings don't define our future possibilities. That's a powerful thing to remember. Look at it like a camera, objectively assess it, and move forward independently, without emotion, 
correcting the mistakes that you've made. Last, borrow a tool from the psychologist tool chest. It's called anchoring. Anchoring is used in, num- in a number of different settings. For example, when you walk into a car dealership, the price of the car is already set, usually, right? So all the subsequent discussions and negotiations are relative to that price of the car. But who's to say the initial price is anchored in truth or reality? People use anchoring all the time. And the same goes for us. When we go about making sense of a failing in life, our brain does the same thing. It anchors in what we have thought about in the past. In other words, we begin where we left off or we measure ourselves relative to anchors of the past. You see, when our brains don't have a well-defined basis for making a decision, it relies on whatever information is available as an anchor. And if our failings are our anchors, then everything we think about becomes relative to them rather than the future and who we want to become being our anchor then everything we think about becomes relative to that. So when a person's way of thinking is anchored in a truth, like the truths that I shared earlier, then that becomes the point from which we relate all things, including our failings. These truths exist. Remember, you are of immense worth. Number two, you have the power within you to make good choices and do hard things. And number three, you are amazing and your potential to make a difference in this world to other people and for good is unlimited. You see, when these truths are your anchor, your failing today is only temporary because you're of great worth. You can learn from your failing. You can write it down. You can evaluate it. And just like a half-time redirection, you can move forward to your own true identity. You can objectively see. And when you can see who you really are, you can be who you really can be. I hope this has helped. I thank you very much for being here today. We'll talk about the next steps to opening your eyes in our next podcast. And I look forward to being with you again soon.